0: Before I preach this message, I want to address something I put on Facebook that people are asking me about, and I just said it, actually, and people are making fun of me already, but it, I posted something about saying, in the name of Jesus. Anybody ever, did anybody see that this week? I said, uh, if you have to say, in the name of Jesus, you've kind of forget, forgotten the point of in the name of Jesus. I didn't mean that it's unbiblical or bad for you to say, in the name of Jesus, Okay. It's okay if you say that. I say it all the time. Um, But I think we need to really understand that saying in the name of Jesus isn't some magical spell that blesses everything you just said. In the name of Jesus really means as you're walking in your identity in Christ, that everything you say on his behalf is actually already in the name of Jesus. And you don't have to say those words in order to walk in that beloved identity of God. Uh, we should be at a point or getting to a point in our lives where we're walking with Jesus, walking with God in such a way that we understand that we're blessed to be a blessing. We understand that we have a new identity in Christ. Uh, some, uh, a new practice that I'm kind of trying to really get under um, for this year is, you know, we always pray kind of the same way, like, uh, Lord, bless this meal in Jesus' name. And if I'm blessed to be a blessing, I'm starting to say, I bless this meal in Jesus' name. And so some of you are laughing, but it's It's real. You are blessed to be a blessing, so start being the blessing. He said, "I've given you the authority to bless the meal, because you walk in my name, in my authority. Hey y'all getting it? I just want to go off on that a little before we get into the message. Wheat y'all y'all good? Gosh, It's a rough night. People making fun of my lumberjack look. <laughs> I rebuke you in Jesus' name. week 10, anchored down. Last week, we left off with Elisha leading the opposing army into perhaps the most vulnerable place for defeat, into being surrounded by the Sumerians. And they did that because Elisha prayed that the army will be blind, and uh, the blind, blind people uh, being blind, you're very easily deceived. And they didn't know who they were talking to. They just knew they were out for some guy named Elisha. Well, Elisha praying that they would be blind, they didn't see it was him. He led them into this vulnerable place. And instead of having them destroyed, because when this army came into uh, Samaria, the, the king of Israel was like, do I, do I get to kill him? Do I get to kill him? Like it, which is kind of funny. The king was asking the prophet, but Elisha was like, no, let's feed them, let's bless them, and they left with a totally different vision of the people of Israel, and, that, and the scripture actually ended with saying they never came against the people of Israel for that. The army didn't want to do that. Um, in other words, they left seeing differently. That's what we talked about, that let the blind see, that we are to treat others on behalf of God. We do life and we react to situations that will cause people to see God differently because they're seeing God in us, therefore seeing God. Well, today we're ending that chapter and going into the next. And the last verse we read last week talked about that the army was not going to attack Israel. So the king's probably thankful for Elisha, right? Right? Like, thanks, like, we don't have an enemy anymore. But, unfortunately, just because the army was affected doesn't mean it shifted the opposing army's king's position. So I want to start out in 2 Kings 6, verses 24 through 25. Sometime later, however, King Benadad of Aram mustered his entire army and besieged Samaria. So literally the army left saying we're never going to touch these guys again and then the king came back and took over the entire nation that just blessed his army. Like, thanks for feeding my guys, now we're going to conquer you. As a result, there was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long, now this this message is going to get weird, that a donkey's head sold for 80 pieces of silver and a cup of dove poop sold for five pieces of silver. (laughs) Bible's strange sometimes. Now what Elisha and the king of Israel did, it changed the heart of the Aramean armies, but not the heart of King Aram. So what does he do? He launches an attack. And I want to start off by saying this, just because your ministry has helped some to see God, don't expect everyone to be affected the same way. I think that's where so much frustration comes is when we're obedient to God and we think that everyone should fall suit into that obedience. But it just doesn't work like that. There will be people that who, who they come and they get to know Jesus and just because they get to know Jesus doesn't mean that their family's going to change. There's, there's going to be times where people come here, come into the house of God, and they get uh, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, um, fall up under the Holy Spirit's leading, and they go back and tell everyone at their work, but that don't mean everyone at work is going to fall under where they are. It just doesn't work like that. And there's so many frustrations that come from you thinking that what God has called you to do will have that same effect on everybody. It just simply doesn't have that effect on everybody. In fact, this is why Jesus teaches that in the parable called the scattered seed. And I want to pull off just one verse of that parable. It's Matthew 13, 15. It says, the hearts of these people are hardened. Their ears cannot hear, and they have closed their eyes. So their eyes cannot see, their ears cannot hear, their hearts cannot understand, and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. They cannot turn to God and let God heal them because their hearts were hardened and they couldn't see because circumstances of their life had caused them to lose trust in God. They choose to become hardened to God rather than pursuing him even more. And I think a lot of people are like that sometimes. Our situations aren't changing, so we start blaming God for why it hasn't changed. And all of a sudden, you get hardened to the heart of God, to the voice of God, to seeing God. And when you hear some church person say, well, God calls you to do this, you come up with every reason in your past life as to why you don't trust it actually works. You ever had conversations with people like that? So the job of someone ministering is not to convince someone because you can't convince anyone. It's simply to be obedient Because you never know when a hardened heart will be broken down just a little bit more to the point of receiving because you've been obedient in ministering to that hardened heart. The point of ministry is not necessarily success. The point of ministry is that you are obedient and you sow a seed trusting that God is going to allow that seed to grow. This king did not see a thing. He saw weakness and he wanted to attack. And his attack was so successful that it literally starved Samaria. The famine was so bad that a donkey's head and dove poop became expensive. Kind of reminds me in times of today. Things are starting to skyrocket in price. <laughs> Finally, amen. You know, gas prices go up and food prices. I was talking to uh, what's going on in the stir build out over there. They said wood just went up 40% in cost. I mean, it's crazy. Well, they're at this place. They're, they're so conquered that it's led to a famine. They can't get their um, shipping containers to come in, Right? Oh, is that too much? Okay, right? They are in so much need. And I want to really point out how much this need is because it says that the donkey head costs how much? There you go, 80 shekels of silver. Do you know that five shekels of silver was more than one month's wage? That means a donkey head costs eight months of salary. And dove poop costs one. Can you imagine me in the place where you were trying to buy poop to eat? It's crazy. So you understand how hungry they are. They're desperate. They're needing something. And I wanted to point that out because there's actually a place in Deuteronomy where God warns Israel about a curse that would come if the nation rejected him. In fact, the entire passage, if you want to read it, in Deuteronomy 28, the first half talks about obedience, the second half talks about disobedience. But I want to pull out three verses from the end of the prophecy. It says, Its army will devour your livestock and crops. This is Deuteronomy 28, 51. And you will be destroyed. They will leave you no grain, new wine, olive oil, caps, or lambs, and you will starve to death. Thanks, God. Thanks for the encouragement. They will attack your cities until all your fortified walls in your land, the walls you trusted to protect you, are knocked down. They will attack all the towns in the land the Lord has given you. The siege and terrible distress of the enemy's attacks will be so severe that you will eat the flesh of your own sons and daughters whom the Lord God has given you. Now, you know it's going to get tough if God says it's going to get so bad you want to eat your kids. I saw a little child back there went, <laughs> Don't worry, we ain't there. Israel was not perfect, even though they listened to Elisha. Remember, Elisha was positioned in Israel to help restore it. I know this is slow, but it's building up somewhere. They had some issues, and Elisha was sent there to help restore and help lead them in where the issues were. And you need to know that because what you're about to read, it gets messed up. They're starving it's a month's wage to buy dove poop. It's eight month's wage to buy a donkey head. Now look at verse 26. One day as the king of Israel is walking along the wall of the city, a woman called to him. Please help me, my lord the king. He answered, well, if God don't help you, what can I do? I have neither food from the threshing floor nor wine from the press to give you. But then the king asked, what is the matter? So she replied, well, this woman said to me, come on, let's eat your son today, and then we'll eat my son tomorrow. So we cooked my son and we ate him. And then the next day I said to her, kill your son so we can eat him. But she's hitting her son. Just casual conversation in the life of Israel. (laughs) What is she complaining about? We are so hungry that we made an agreement to eat our child. Now, you know It's tough. And what she's upset about was they ate her kid, and when it was time to feast on the other woman's kid, he was gone. It's probably a smart idea. It's bad. Deuteronomy said, you will eat the flesh of your sons and daughters. And the king is still blind to a prophecy that they probably all knew about from going to the temple all the time. But isn't that kind of where we're at in America? In the world, the Bible says, like, as we get toward the end, there will be many earthquakes. I mean, South Carolina just had an earthquake, right? It says that the beginning of the end times are more earthquakes. The, 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 The Bible says that a sign of the end times is even homosexuality, and we're surprised at how that's rising up. We're surprised how the school systems are teaching kids that there is no him and her. Like, are we really surprised by that? Or do we just need to read what our flipping prophecy says? This isn't just a cool book that's holy. There's prophecy in here that we're living out. Get real with it. I just can't believe what they're doing. Get over it and minister to it. I don't know why I went there. They're doing these horrible things out of acts of desperation. You know, the Bible tells us there's nothing new under the sun, yet America has been hardened to the knowledge of even this Deuteronomy prophecy. What was the Deuteronomy prophecy all about if you are disobedient then? It's not a surprise to me that the more a nation becomes disobedient to God that we're going down, 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 down. And it's our responsibility to act on behalf of God because we're positioned here to restore it. So look look what happens in verse 30. When the king heard this, he tore his clothes in despair. And as the king walked along the wall, the people could see that he was wearing burlap under his robe next to his skin. May God strike me and even kill me if I don't separate Elisha's head from his shoulders this very day. Stay right there a second. This king is so hardened in his heart and so blind that he is now blaming their famine on Elisha's obedience to God. But you know how common I hear that when the world talks about the church? If your God is real, then why why are we here? And our response would be, well, look at your actions, right? Or maybe a more proper response, look at our actions. Because we gotta be humble in addressing the issue as well. Right? It's may God strike me and kill me if I don't cut off Elisha's head. Elisha, verse 32, was sitting in his house when the elders of Israel with the king, when the king sent a messenger to summon him. But before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Our murderer has sent a man to cut off my head. When he arrives, shut the door, keep him out. Well, that's a good idea, Elisha. We will soon hear his master steps following him. While Elisha was still saying this, the messenger arrived. And the king said, all this misery is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? The king was so angry and so deceived that he did not see what the choices of leadership had caused. He wasn't even angry at the fact that these women were eating children. He was angry with the prophet of God, and more so, he was simply angry with God. You know, he's justifying these women eating their kids. He's justifying the reason they're in a famine. It's because of you, and it's because of God. If we had not listened to God, we would have killed this army who just took us over that put us in a famine. God, you tell us to bless our enemies, but that's not working for me so you must have been wrong, right? God, you told me to forgive the person who did this horrible injustice to me, and I don't see anything negative happening in their life. God, you must have been wrong. A lot of times when we don't see things start to happen for justice, we start blaming God that he's not working because really the reason you came to God wasn't for justice is you wanted revenge, Right? It's not about obedience. It's about if I do, God, you better. When really and truthfully, what we should be in a posture of is God, I will be obedient and I will trust you in your whatever. He was angry with God. He didn't see that Elisha's word from God saved them. He simply blamed Elisha for an opposing king's reaction. He blamed God for bringing the famine on the people. People will praise God for great things and blame him for everything else. When really all we've got to do is start taking responsibility. It's so easy to blame God on everything. God, why did you take my loved one? Who says God took him? Who says God took her? Well, the Bible says that there's a time for everyone, but that don't mean it was in their time. Mm-hmm. We blame God for all the bad stuff. It must have been in His plans, or could it be that we operated outside of His plan, which put people in the predicament? It was not, uh, yeah, it was not God's plan for your loved one to overdose. It wasn't God's plan for your loved one to have a heart attack. Their physical flesh failed them, not God. It wasn't God's plan for for babies to be aborted. You know how I can tell you that? Because God says I knew them even before mommy got pregnant. That wasn't God's plan. But we love to take tough situations and say, well, God must have, and then you start creating this conversation where people actually start becoming hardened to the power and the love of God. And I think, I don't know if this is not deep enough for you, but we've got to get to the place in our relationship with the Almighty that we make sure whatever we say on his behalf actually represents him. Because what's representing him now is turning people away. Because truth isn't being spoken. And then we also have to understand that as we speak truth, people may also turn away. God did not turn his back on you. But perhaps we turned on him. Perhaps the nation that we are a part of turned. And we have to be the representation of God in the midst of a culture reaping what it has sowed. Think about the conditions of our nation. God, why is you? We've done this in my household. We've put you first. We've done this. We've done this. Why do we have to experience the results of a famine? Because you live in a culture that's represented not by God anymore. And you've been positioned there to help restore the culture back but we blame God because we've got to deal with what the culture of a unified nation has set. Is this making sense? It, it, it's, it's the answer to the questions of, uh, well, I don't support that. I don't do that. How come I got to deal with it? Because you are here to help restore what the whole has reaped, which is if the nation is disobedient to God, you will experience these things. Is this, okay. What led the king of Aram to come was his own ambition and the success of the nation of Israel was forfeited with a lifetime of disobedience. Do you realize what could have happened if the nation turned back? It's got a lot to do with leadership. We have to pray and represent until God handles the replacement of leadership. That's where honor comes in. You don't honor leadership because you agree. You honor until God says it's time. And in the meantime, you walk in such a way with your God that you are restoring lost principles to a nation that doesn't know what they're being guided by. I talked about this a little last week, but I'll say it again. The Bible says, where there is no vision, the people perish. When we're under a vision that does not exalt God, there is not enough disciplines to steer a nation in the direction God wants it. So that's why God says there has to be a remnant that comes up who remembers my way, who teaches my way, who goes in my way. When everyone else says that's not the way. The most popular theological teaching of today is that all gods are God. Whatever you choose is right. What happened to the boldness of the people of God to say, I'm sorry, but I'm glad you feel good, but you're still in famine? You're still without. You're on the road to perish. What happened to that? What, ha- what, what, what why has the church become so passive at just let them choose their own way? But you are put there to help restore what, what's been lost. And we stay silent instead of speaking in. Why has the church become, don't take this the wrong way, so feminine? And I'm not talking about filled with women. I'm talking about you got preachers that dress like girls. Wearing jeans tighter than leather. No offense if you wear that, but. (laughs) It's all about love, 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 love. When we worship a Jesus that went in the temple and tossed over tables, which was in love, the church has redefined love wrong. Is this this too much? We've lost our confidence in Christ. We're so scared of offending people that we won't speak in truth, and the fear of offense has caused people to believe in a truth that's not complete. I I, I was was on Facebook this week, and I saw, I I do it to stalk preachers, by the way. (laughs) And I saw one of my preachers, I call him a friend, but he don't call me a friend. I saw one of my preacher friends put up, I wish the church would start preaching sound doctrine. And my, I wanted to, you know, I did my usual thing. I wrote out this paragraph and then deleted it. <laughs> but what I wanted to say to him was, buddy, like, I love your passion for Jesus, but if all you're teaching is Jesus, that is not sound. I, <laughs> dang. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to edit that one out. Because God, God didn't tell me to say it, because I haven't earned the relationship to say it big key, earn the relationship to say it. That's not something I'm good at. We've got to pray until God says it's time to make a change. So this king has brought the people into, into famine because of the disobedience of a leader, the disobedience of a nation, and it's, in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, it says, it says this, because remember, The king just came, hey, we're going to cut off your head. And Elisha's just chilling. Elisha's like, yeah, I know, someone's going to come in, they're going to cut my head off, I got it. I love that confidence. But look what happens in verse 1. Elisha replied, listen to this message from the Lord. Look at that boldness. They came to cut his head off, and he's like, I got a word for you. (laughs) This is what the Lord says, by this time tomorrow in the markets of Samaria, six quarts of choice flour will cost only one piece of silver. One week's wages versus a month. Twelve quarts of barley grain will cost only one piece of silver. In other words, the whole economic famine and the issue is going to get turned up and down tomorrow. Now, if you said that today in the church, most pastors will be start commenting on the post: false prophecy, God can't do it, but you preach sound doctrine. Isn't it amazing the restraints we put on what God can do and what God can't do? Well, look what he says. The officer assisting the king said to the man of God, that couldn't happen even if the Lord opened the windows of heaven. But Elijah replied, you will see it with your own eyes, but you won't be able to eat any of it. Look at the love of God. The king is sitting here blaming God that God still had a word for him and the nation. God allows calamity because of disobedience, but that does does not mean that God will ever give up. And he's not going to give up on you. There's always going to be a word to steer you out of what you've reaped because of what you've sowed. Just because you're reaping horrible things because of what you did doesn't mean God's given up on you. He still had a word for the king. Hebrews 6, 17 through 20 says this, God also bound himself with an oath. You ever had the question of, is there anything God can't do? Yes, actually. And we're about to read it in the scripture. So those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So let me just start there. God don't change his mind. You're not gonna hear a different word from God that contradicts each other every other day. Can I say that again? Because I get sick and tired of, God showed me this, and then the the next day, it's not working. So, well, God showed me something else. No, you didn't work what he showed you in the first place. Okay? (laughs) Well, God showed me another way. No, it's still the same. You haven't been obedient. Your disobedience is why you're not seeing the word of God come forth. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. What can God not do? Lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. You don't need an anchor for calm oceans. You need an anchor to secure you in rough waters. And when things come against you, you should be so anchored down with a hope in him that he has made an oath To never give up on you and never leave you. And he cannot break that. But we're not anchored in it. We're not anchored in that confident hope anymore. We say that we have trust in Jesus, but when horrible things come your way, does your reaction look God-like or do you retreat back to your flesh? Jesus, it says, Jesus has gone ahead of you into the inner sanctuary of God. In other words, it says he went behind the veil. Remember when Jesus died, what tore? The veil. What the veil did, it separated one place from the other. The way the temple was built is you entered into the courts, the outer courts of the temple. You entered the gates with thanksgiving, and you went into the courts, and you gave him what? Praise. Once you went through that, and you washed your hands, and you purified, and you you gave a blood sacrifice, the whole deal, you went into this place, this room called the holy place. And you could offer up prayers and you would burn incense. That's where the scripture comes from. Offer up prayers as incense to God. Because before we had direct access, that's what they had to do. You see, that stuff actually does make sense. You, You would offer up prayers, you would do all these things. And then once a year, with everything that you gave, the high priest went into this one room behind the veil, dark, only lit up. By the Ark of the Covenant called the Most Holy Place or the Holy of Holies. And the scripture we just read said that Jesus went before you into that most holy place as the what? The high priest. And he tore the separation. So the place that no one else could ever get into, you have access to every single second. But are you so anchored in him that you understand where you're actually positioned in Christ? His presence goes with you. His his presence has gone before you. When stuff happens, you're in the presence. You don't have to get to church to be in the presence. You don't have to get to a holy place. You are in the most holy place because you are anchored in the Almighty. And if you are in such a place consumed with the presence of God, nothing should ever move you. Think about Elisha. Amen, we're here to cut your head off. (laughs) I got a word for you. (laughs) What was he? He was anchored. He was in the presence of God, and he said, I don't care what threat comes at me, you can't move me. I'm anchored in him. Maybe the anchor is simply knowing that no matter what comes at you, God always has a word for you. Maybe the anchor is that no matter what, Comes against you, you are always in his presence. It puts a whole new meaning on he never leaves you, he never forsakes you. Why? Because he's all around you. We are positioned in a place that many we read about in the Old Testament never got to experience. And look how we just take advantage of it. We're no longer separated. Therefore, we should be anchored in the hope that no matter what we go through, his presence is there. Now, the word was that the famine is ending. that there will be such an abundance that the food prices would significantly drop. He says the windows of heaven are about to open up and the officer says, not even God can do that. But isn't that the status of people? We talk about God all the time, but do you really believe what he can do? Or maybe your lack of belief reveals what you're actually anchored in. We come up to impossible situations where all the the cards are stacked, and and we say, well, there's just no more hope for that. What is going to happen to us? What's going to become of us? And God's like, I can do anything. I've got plans for you. Are you anchored in circumstances or are you anchored in me? What's moving you, son? What's moving you, daughter? Because I haven't told you to move. I haven't told you to lead. I haven't told you to shift your position. I haven't told you to not praise me. But for some reason in this circumstance, I have lost your praise. What are you anchored in? Is this, is, is this making sense? Elisha replies, well, doubter, you'll see, but you ain't going to benefit from it. Because when you're not anchored to him, his promise is going to come true with or without you. And without you doesn't mean you won't see, but it may mean you miss out. Not because God didn't want it for you, but because you rejected it because you were never anchored in him. You prefer the tossing of the waves. When, everything, when every circumstance comes up in life, you're tossed to and fro, back and forth. But if you're anchored in the Almighty, nothing can move you. Nothing can shake you. Does that mean we won't feel? Of course not. We're going to feel things, but we're not moved by an emotion. We, we are anchored in Him as we go through the emotion. I want to point out what the king said in the last verse of the previous chapter. Look at verse 33. When Elisha was still saying this, the messenger arrived and the king said, all this misery is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? You see, the king was not anchored in God. This is the king of Israel. Remember, who one chapter ago, he was listening to the prophet for advice and he even called Elisha father. Why did he shift so quickly? Because what was he anchored in? Circumstances. When church worked for him, it was, oh, Father, what should I do? When it didn't work for him, "Yo, God caused this. You see, what you're anchored in will be revealed in how you react to hard situations. The king leaned into self. Elisha leaned into God. You have to ask yourself, when stuff falls apart and people let you down, what do you lean to? Who are you anchored in? Or are you moved because of the, because of the calamity? We should be at a place where we say, God, I know you have not, will not, and cannot fail me, so I lean in you. What would you have me say, and what would you have me do? Rather than questioning your entire faith. Rather than questioning, well, did I get it right? Because I followed what I thought God said, and now I'm here, and this situation doesn't exactly look promising. Well, here's the deal. Just because you're following God doesn't mean the people around you are following God. And sometimes their actions will affect you directly. That's why you have to stay anchored in him because there is a way through it. Circumstances happen. There's free will. We choose things outside of the context of God's plan for us. That means things will affect you that should have never affected you because they should not have chosen that thing. So God says, stay anchored in me because I've gone before you and I'm with you. He sees everything that's happened. He sees everything that's going to happen. And all we need to do is stay anchored and serve until he gives us a what? A word. Elisha wasn't moved by the threat. He was moved by the trust he was anchored into. To the point that he told the dude that came to kill him about himself. Well, you disobedient, that's fine. We're gonna enjoy the price dropping, you won't get to. We're gonna be eating fine, you're gonna be starving. That that's some that's some confidence. That's some boldness. So look what happens in verse three. Is this okay? All right. Y'all, y'all really quiet. <laughs> now, it seems to take a shift, but this is actually in the same story. Now there were four men with leprosy sitting at the entrance of the city gates. Listen to their conversation. Why should we sit here waiting to die? Remember, they're in a famine. They asked each other, "We'll starve if we stay here, but with the famine in the city, we are gonna starve if we go back. So we might as well just go out and surrender to the Aramean army. If they let us live, so much the better. <laughs> you know, you at a low point where like, well, let's just go surrender, and if we die, we die. If we live, we live. But if they kill us, well, we would have died anyway." So at twilight, they set out for the camp of the Arameans, but when they came to the edge of the camp, no one was there. You see, while all that was going on, you've got four guys with leprosy. When this rhetoric of Elisha and the king and the king's servant, while this is going on, you've got four guys with leprosy sitting at the city gates. Why? They weren't welcome. They had leprosy. They were the outcasts. They were the untouchables. They had great logic. But I want to point out what they were actually saying. We're going to die if we stay here. We're going to die if we go back. But there's the hope of living if we go to the place of surrender. And when they went to the place of surrender... There was more than enough, an empty camp with no enemy and plenty of provision. So many have missed the power of surrender because we try to get everything by our hand instead of being so anchored in God that we surrender to his leading. These men had no idea what the Lord was up to. But look at what's revealed in the next two verses, verse 6. The Lord had caused the Aramean army, this is awesome, to hear the clatter of speeding chariots and the galloping of horses and the sounds of a great army approaching. The king of Israel has hired the Hittites and the Egyptians to attack us, they cried to one another. They panicked, they ran into the night, abandoning their tents, their horses, their donkeys, and everything else, and they fled for their lives. Remember the army that the servant of Elisha saw? It was horses and chariots of fire. And while these men had this conversation, sometimes you're having a conversation with the Holy Spirit when you don't know who the Holy Spirit is. I can prove it because God says the only way to know him is the Holy Spirit leading you to do it. You're having a conversation who you don't know and then your eyes are open to who you actually talk to. they're having this conversation and God takes the chariots of fire and the horses, the angel army that had been there the whole time. What does this point out? They hadn't left. Even though famine came, even though they were conquered, the army hadn't left. Because God says, I know what's going to happen, but I have the provision. I have the way out. I have what you need. So they're talking and all of a sudden God sends this army and the other, the Aramean army, they can't see anything's going on because they're not anchored in God. They're anchored in their own belief system. They're anchored in their own God. They have no idea what's going on, but God allowed them to hear. And they heard all this galloping and all this, this power and they ran. Sometimes we forget that Jesus has gone before us and his angels follow suit. God went ahead of these lepers and took care of the enemy by causing them to fear the sound of God. I wonder what would happen to a nation that began to fear the sound of God in such a way that the enemy would run and the people would learn to depend from a place of surrender. You know why this world is full of all this sin rising up? They're searching for identity instead of surrendering to an identity. They don't like who they are, so they're trying to be a man. The man's trying to be a woman. The woman's trying to be a man. The man's trying to be a man who ain't a man who is a woman. The woman only wants to be a man who's a woman who's not a man. Then they get to a place where it's like, we not man or woman. we binary. No, we're non-binary. And non-binary, whatever. See, the school's, no, I was kidding. <laughs> I know, you're, you're, in, you're in a Christian education. <laughs> we're in this place where people are so searching for identity that they're making up stuff that doesn't exist and they're finding peace in it because they're not anchored to any reality of heaven. And our response is to make them feel bad about it? Why not give them a word? Why, Why not go to a place of surrender ourselves so that everything they're searching for, they see us feasting on. Can we get really honest? I think the church sometimes is more miserable than the world. Everyone goes through church hurt. Pastors suck. Is it okay if I say that word? It's It's a new language of the house. Right? Leaders fail people churches squander money, no one trusts anything, and everyone's miserable. Are we really anchored? Are we really surrendered? Because what they're seeing, they're trying to run so far away from. We've lost the power of surrendering and becoming anchored down. See, the lepers came to this place of needing to surrender. And when they went to surrender with the possibility of life, you know what they found? Life. Look at verse eight and nine. When the men with leprosy arrived at the edge of the camp, they went into one tent after another, eating and drinking wine. Uh, yeah, they they were they, they were having communion, folks. They carried off silver and gold and clothing and hid it, but finally they said to each other, this is not right. This is a day of good news, and we aren't sharing it with anyone. If we wait until morning, some calamity will certainly fall upon us. Come on, let's go back and tell the people at the palace. I love how they didn't wait for the next morning. When you get a conviction, you act on it. They were enjoying the provision that came from surrender, but to remain silent and not share the blessing would actually be sin. Why? We are to be obedient to the responsibility of sharing the good news. And the good news is not just about Jesus. It's the good news is Jesus, and he provides for me by going before me. And he understands me more than I understand myself. And I don't have to search for anything or get anchored into a new theology or get anchored into mysticism or get anchored into anything else because I have all I need in this man and and, in this God. Let me share it with you. And think about it. The lepers enjoyed the feast before they shared what was going on. You can't share the good news unless you're already feasting from it. And a lot of times in life, you know you're not anchored down in him because you're you're starving for other things because apparently your God cannot be sufficient for your hunger. Is this good? Not being anchored down in him reveals what you're feasting on. Look at verse 10 and 11. They went back to the city and told the gatekeepers what had happened. We went out to the Aramean camp, they said, and no one was there. The horses and the donkeys were tethered and the tents were all in order, but there wasn't a single person around. And then the gatekeeper shouted the news to the people in the palace. Now remember, they, commuted with the, they communicated with the gatekeepers. Why? They weren't welcome. They had leprosy. Sometimes when you're feasting in God, there will be times where you communicate with gatekeepers. People protecting what's theirs, but not surrendered to your God. And even though they reject you, you're still called to share the news so that they have a chance to see. It's like you feast on forgiveness, but you won't forgive the gatekeeper of your home life called mom and dad, right? Right? you'll feast on I'm gonna get a word at church I'm going to praise God but then Monday you show your boss everything but God right You feast on it but the gatekeepers of the areas of your life that you wish you were the gatekeeper of you're called to share the good news. not let it spoil. There's a lot of different gatekeepers in your life. There's a gatekeeper of this nation called the president that you talk bad about all the time. Sure, we can judge the actions, but why not pray for blessing and vision and his eyes to open? I don't support anything he does, but man, I want to share the good news with him. Verse 12. The king got out of bed in the middle of the night, told his officers, I know what's happened. (laughs) The area means they know we're starving, so they left their camp and they've hidden in the fields. They're expecting us to leave the city and then they're going to take us alive and capture us. One of his officers replied, we better send out scouts to check into this. Let them take five of the remaining horses. If something happens to them, it won't be any worse than if they stay here and die with the rest of us. (laughs) Pessimism. So two chariots with horses were prepared. The king sent the scouts out to see what happened to the Aramean army. They went all the way to the Jordan River following a trail of clothing and equipment that the Arameans had thrown away in their mad rush to escape. The scouts returned and told the king about it. Then the people of Samaria rushed out, plundered the Aramean camp. So it was true (laughs) that six quarts of choice flour were sold that day for one piece of silver. Twelve quarts of barley grain were sold for one piece of silver, just as the Lord I promise. In other words, prophecy was fulfilled. How was the prophecy fulfilled? The people heard about the provision and they went after it. I believe many prophecies are waiting for fulfillment, not because of God, but it's waiting on the ones who are feasting on his provision. This is going to challenge a lot of your theology, but just deal with it. Could it be that Jesus' return depends on you and not the Father? The reason you don't know the time is because the time is depending on the agreement of the Father with his sons and daughters. Think about it no one knows the time but the Father. Because the father is waiting on sons and daughters to start feasting on the provision. And when they start feasting in the provision, others are going to run for it and all of a sudden the father's going to say, okay, now it's time. It all comes down to are we really anchored in him? Do we really understand that the father has that deep of a relationship with us? We moved Jesus out of his time when he performed his first miracle. Jesus, will you turn this water into wine? It's not my time. Jesus, please, we need it. So Jesus turned the water into wine even though he knew it was not his time. Why? Because the people of God moved him. They pulled on him. They were wanting to feast on what he had. Can you imagine what would happen if the people of God actually started to feast? Is this too much? Can you imagine what would happen if we had such a fire to run for God that the time of his return sped up? See, we we don't like to think we have anything to do with it yet the biggest move of all eternity had everything to do with buying you back. Maybe we need to realize we are actually that important. You see, instead of being anchored down, we look everywhere, everywhere else for our needs and we don't depend on him. And speaking of prophecies being fulfilled, look at the last three verses of this chapter the king appointed his officer to control the traffic at the gate. But he was knocked down and trampled to death as the people rushed out. So everything happened exactly as the man of God had predicted when they came to his house. And then he goes over the prophecy again. The man of God said this to the king. By this time tomorrow in the markets of Samaria, six quarts of choice flour will cost one piece of silver, 12 quarts of barley grain will cost one piece of silver, The king officers replied, that couldn't happen even if the Lord opened up the windows of heaven. And the man of God said, you'll see it with your own eyes, but you won't be able to eat it. And so it was because the people trampled him to death. You see, the officer couldn't enjoy the pouring out of the windows of heaven because he wasn't listening for God. He was listening to the fallen king who positioned him for death. Sounds a lot Like people who are anchored down to government agenda. Sounds a lot like people who are anchored down to their belief systems. You see, honor is one thing, going against God's another. Honor never means disobedience. Unbelief and not being anchored can cause you to miss out on so much of God's blessings. Do you realize what happened in this whole chapter? The prophecy that Elisha gave was fully dependent on the people. Four lepers made a choice of surrender. And that choice of surrender led them to great provision that only God made a way for. And they started to enjoy God. It's kind of like the picture of the church, right? We know that Jesus saved us, so people are starting to go to the place to understand salvation. And we're feasting on it. Jesus saved us. God loves us. Jesus sacrificed himself for us. The Father gave a son. That's been the church for so many years. But now this new thing is starting to come up that there's actually more to it if you understand that Jesus is the door. And in my Father's house, there are many rooms. And if you pray a prayer like, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as is in heaven, you don't have to wait to physically die to experience the rooms. And that new idea is starting to come up. And that's what's happening with these guys. They were feasting on good news, good news. Oh, this is so good. Wait a minute. We've got to share this with others. So they went outside the walls of their feast of this camp and went back to the gates. And it caused such a fire in people that they ran to the enemy's camp. Trampling over the guy. Prophecy fulfilled because of the people. We have to be so anchored down in the Almighty that nothing will ever move us except surrender And hunger for more of him. I wonder where you're anchored down in. Do you understand that you actually do have a place? And a place is not just, oh yeah, I hand out, you know, worship guides on Saturday nights and I do parking and I play on the worship team. There's so much more than just serve at church. You've got a place in the kingdom to move heaven here. Unfortunately, you're the one being moved. What are you anchored in? Where's your identity? Is it in the beloved identity of Jesus? Or is your identity in your past life? Is it in how you were raised? Is it the horrible things that have happened to you? Where's your identity? And a lot of people in life are just like those four lepers who are sitting outside the gate. They don't feel accepted. They don't feel normal. They don't feel like they can be apart. And all they know is I can't stay here and I'm sure as heck not going back there. And they chose surrender. Surrendering to him will always bring life. When people come to me with struggles, I immediately begin to ask where their obedience is, especially to the related subject. Anything. When people come to me with a marriage that's on the rocks, first question I ask both the man and the woman is what is your relationship with Jesus? Because if you're not anchored in him, I'm I'm not going to expect this union to have any power. When people come to me about financial issues, first thing I ask, do you tithe? Not because I'm looking for more money for the church, but because something's locked up and you're giving. Which a lot of couples get wrong. They think that one couple can, one person can tithe. Yet, yet you have to understand that when a man and woman come together, you are one. i, I always ask people those questions. Where are you anchored in? Is your, is your financial situation anchored? Is your relationship anchored? Where is your praise anchored? I'm so depressed. I'm so worried. Where is your trust anchored? The guy, get anchored down. Everything is in him and there is so much power in depending on him. Church, I've got one simple message tonight. Let's get anchored so that we'll never miss out and anchored so much that we have so much to share. I believe one day this house, among other houses, are going to be so anchored in him and so feasting on him that when we start to share and people start to see, they're going to come running in. Let's get anchored down. Amen? Let's stand. <clears throat> Let's just take a moment and just stretch our hands to heaven and just worship him. Out loud, silent, whatever you want. Just tell him how good he is. Get to a place of surrender. Maybe you've there's a place in your life where you have not surrendered to him. I'm going to do a different type of altar call tonight. I know your hands are raised, but if you're at a place right now where you realize you haven't had sur- you have not surrendered in areas can you just look up at me really quick just just make eye contact with me I haven't surrendered in certain places Yeah I feel like the Lord is telling me for everyone that's looking up He says surrender is not as far off as you think it is It's at your fingertips. All you've got to do is say, Lord, I don't want it anymore. And trust that he'll take it. Because what you are supposed to be feasting on is already in front of you. So Lord, open up eyes. Open their eyes to the feast right in front of them. And as they're anchoring down in you tonight, God, it will be so apparent, I prophesy right now, that even tomorrow, the thing they struggle with will be gone in your name, Jesus. And a new feast begins, a new feast of surrender, a new feast of life in you. Lord, we lift all these things up. We pray over this area. We pray over this nation. We pray, God, that you would... Lead us to a place where people will run to feast on you. That this nation and this whole world is restored where all we depend on is you, our Father. We love you, Lord. Show us visions tonight. Give us the keys to what we are supposed to be walking in under your name, Jesus. Holy Spirit, activate what needs to be activated Talk to us, show us, so that we can get even more anchored in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, Amen. 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 Can we give God praise? Amen. Amen.